All right, we're in 1 Timothy. We're starting our series in 1 Timothy today. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them. For our reading this morning, I'm going to read from chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, though we'll be looking at the whole book. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 992, page 992 in the Pew Bible. The most important thing we do in the service is read God's Word, because that's when God's voice is heard. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You can be seated as we pray. Father, most of us who are praying right now are of the conviction that no good can be done apart from your Holy Spirit. That any words I say or any way we've tried to prepare our own hearts are ultimately only useful insofar as your Spirit uses them. And so together right now, in two different rooms and then also in people listening Uh, via live stream. We unite our prayers and we ask for your spirit to work in our midst that we might hear your voice and know what you're saying and be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do not be surprised. That phrase is used twice in the Bible. Both times, talking about the the, the coming days that will be dark and hard and difficult. One of them, Peter says it. The other one, John says it. They're two of Jesus' closest disciples telling us that. Do not be surprised. And yet, we're surprised. See, churches splinter and divide. We see Christian leaders prove to be turncoats. Where we think there should be Christian love, we see Christians backbiting and devouring one another. We see dangerous doctrine being carefully crafted and then made the soup du jour in certain churches. And our own hearts break when we see people we love make shipwreck of their faith. And we're surprised. But God has told us in numerous places in the Bible that this is exactly what would happen. One place is in 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says... Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from thy faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Let me put it like this. The church is a little bit like a big rig driving down a highway in Saskatchewan on a windy day. 
I actually haven't been in Saskatchewan, but I've been in the plains, the, United, or the prairies of the United States, and you're driving on a windy day, and you see these semis, and they, you know, when the wind blows, they're blown right off course. It's kind of you're like, should I pass it? Should I not? You know what I'm talking about? Imagine it's an empty big rig, and these big open plains, and the wind blowing in. It's a little bit what the church is like. It's trying to stay its course. The winds are going to blow, and the, the Bible says don't be surprised by that. The Spirit expressly says that it's going to happen. So what's the solution? If that's what's going to come, what can we do about it? And that's precisely why 1 Timothy was written. So what I want to do this morning is kind of get a sense of the whole book and what it's doing. And we're going to do that in four parts. First, we're going to look at what the aim of 1 Timothy is. Why is it being written? And then we're going to look at the threats that it exposes. Then we're going to look at the solution it gives. And finally, why it all matters. So the aim, threat, solution, why it all matters. And let's look first at the aim of 1 Timothy. I've already used this illustration, of course, of the big rig driving down the highway in the winds. Being blown off course, right? That's, that's the illustration he's trying to get. We're, we're, we're supposed to be going in a direction, but we're tempted to blow off course. Look, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells Timothy... As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, one of the things that's going to come is there's going to be teachers who are going to want to blow this thing off course and you've got to make sure that they're not doing that. And look at, look at the word that's used in verse 6 to describe these people. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. Now you know why I chose the road trip analogy. Swerving, right? That's, that's the, the aim of this book is to keep the church from swerving. Look at the end. Look at the end of the book. It begins one way. It ends actually the same way it begins. When a book of the Bible begins and ends the same way, it gives you a really clear clue what that book is about. So verse 20 of chapter 6. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. See, hold this good deposit. Hold on to this. Keep the church going where it should be going and not being caught up in all this other stuff. Blown off course. But look at the word that's used in verse 21. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The danger, the aim, the, the, the danger is swerving. The, the aim is to keep the church from swerving or we could say, to keep the church on course. There's one other verse that's important in this. It's the one we read at the outset from chapter 3. If you're trying to memorize you know, a key verse for 1 Timothy to kind of capture it, 
1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, or 14 through uh, 16, if you'd like, are, are great verses to read. But I hope to come to you soon, verse 14, but I'm writing these things so that, so he's telling us why he's writing, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So how to behave in the church of God, how to stay on course. That's what, that's what the aim of this book is, very plainly, keeping the church on course. So that's the aim. What is the threat? What are, what are the winds that are blowing this thing, threatening to throw, blow this thing off course? Well, we already kind of peaked at chapter 4, verse 1, right? Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That word teachings is actually the same word translated elsewhere in the book as doctrine. These are demon doctrines. In fact, the word doctrine is used about 23 times in the New Testament. Ten of those times are in the small book of 1 Timothy. This is very concerned about sound teaching and threats to it. So you see in chapter 1, verse 3, you're to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Or um, in 1, verse 16, no, that's not right, 1.10, and whatever else is contrary, these are people who promote whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, And then in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, in other words, there is a sound doctrine, there is a healthy doctrine, there is a, a straight line in front of us that we're supposed to follow, like a farmer plowing his fields, making sure the rows are straight. There is a there's a right, a sound doctrine. But like with money. There's one thing that is true, and all the rest are counterfeits. And in 4.1, Paul calls these demon doctrines. But like with counterfeit money, there is not just one demon doctrine. It comes in many brands, many shapes and sizes. So I just want to briefly look at five different demon doctrines that are identified, categories of demon doctrine that are, that are um, categorized uh, or, or that are exposed for us in 1 Timothy. And the first one is knowledge hawkers. Hawking knowledge, knowledge hawkers. So look at, at chapter 1 again. It says in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, and listen to what it says about them, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see how these people are described? 
I, I understand the law, and I have something that I'm going to teach you about it, and it's a special knowledge, but they actually have missed the entire thing. And the Old Testament rails against these kind of people. People who, who will say, okay, we got to get our sacrifices exactly right. Make sure we're doing them the right way in the temple. And yet they're allowing people to worship pagan gods or to be unjust or not to really love God. Jesus says it's like straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. You already saw at the end, chapter 6, how it's referred to. Avoid the irreverent, verse 20, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So, so what this does is it, it lives on kind of the fringes of Scripture and takes, takes a little truth and a lot of maybe experience or some extra story or something out there that's not biblical and says, this is what we need. This is what we need to, to reach the next level of spiritual maturity. A lot of times they'll, they'll use the Holy Spirit, you know, detached from the scripture, detached from the gospel of Jesus and say, see, you can reach this new height this way. Or there's something that, that historic Christianity has always kept from you and I've discovered the secret. And they're going to live in these areas that they've missed the whole teaching of scripture, the thrust of it. But they're they're looking, living in the peripheries and having these, I'm going to make vain, you know, confident assertions about this and that. And that is a real threat. It is a danger today, just like it was 2,000 years ago. These knowledge hawkers that tell people, I have some insight for you that isn't really rooted in Scripture. First threat, knowledge hawkers. Second one is fight promoters. After Stephen's sermon last week, I had to get boxing into this. This Muhammad Ali illustration, right? I'll, I'll move forward a little bit past Muhammad Ali. Remember Don King, the fight promoter for Mike Tyson with the crazy hair? He was all about, I got to get the big fight going and then talk up the fight and get everyone to, who are you going to be? What side are you going to be on? You know, promote the fight. That's how it works in boxing. In the church, there are those who are so confident in their own view of things that, that anybody who disagrees with them, they kind of stand in judgment over it and, and then stir up controversy around it, get a quarrel going. Just go around talking to everyone. You've you got to be on our side or on that side. What side are you on? Right? Look at how these people are described in chapter 6. Verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. What an assessment! Quarrels, fighting, slander, suspicion. Now, when I say fight promoters, it's not saying there's never a time to stand up for truth. Because in chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, wage the good warfare. And later on in chapter 6, he says, fight the good fight 
of the faith. The question, of course, is not whether we fight, but what we fight for. Because in Timothy, the problem is when we're doing things about things that are, that are just babble, that are vain discussions, that are speculative. Usually these fight promoters aren't actually trying to say, God needs to be bigger in our midst. The gospel needs to be more central. It's always out here in the periphery. Tertiary things. Not related to the key things of scripture. Defending what the scriptures actually say and defending the God they, they put forward, the scriptures put forward. That's why they're swelled up with conceit. It's always, I got an idea, I've got this thought, and it's important, I want to get this through. Fight promoters, second category. Third category, sin winkers. Sin winkers, those who wink at sin. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. Look again in chapter 1. I want to read verses 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just... But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. There will be churches that veer from sound doctrine, not because of the official teaching, but rather because of the lifestyle they promote. Where we say, a little, a little rebellion against authority is a good thing, and promote that. A twisted sexuality, no, we're going to embrace that as good. Profanity, violence, Thumbs up to those things. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. One of the categories of demon doctrine are sin winkers. Tolerate that within the church. Always with some noble purpose. So we can reach more people. Let's tolerate sin. Even promote it. fourth category is the other side of that coin. If sin winkers is the third category, the fourth category is legalists. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here's how it works. I'm going to create this spiritual checklist. Maybe loosely tied to scripture, but it's really kind of man-made categories. Our way of doing things. If you can check a lot of boxes on this spiritual checklist, you're a spiritual giant. You can feel good about yourselves. This is, this is the way to kind of move past the, the plebeian Christians that call themselves Christians out there and reach this higher level 
legalists. Takes all different forms. This is the right way to do X, Y, or Z. The fifth category that First Timothy gives us are reward seekers. Reward seekers. Success in Christian ministry can be every bit as intoxicating as in other spheres. A Christian leader who succeeds finds himself or herself with greater influence, being revered, being admired, being praised. And all of that can make the Christian leader drunk. I want the rewards. I want the accolades. I'll keep seeking those. And that doesn't even include monetary reward. I I read yesterday about a uh, prominent Christian evangelist who draws from one organization over $600,000 to be the lead of that non-for-profit and then for another non-for-profit over $200,000 every year. I don't know that person. I'm just saying greed can actually be a real thing in Christian ministry. So look what chapter 6 says. Picking up in verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of this world. Christian ministry is about the, 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 the term that the New Testament that Jesus uses for Christian ministry is being a servant. If you're seeking reward in this world, it's antithetical to the suffering, the scorn, the heartache, the pain that Christian ministry is supposed to be marked by. The cruciform, the, Christ, the cross-like pattern of our Savior Jesus. Those are the five categories that First Timothy gives us. But when we think of those winds blowing against the big rig, it's not like one of them comes along. No, it's usually kind of a, a Frankenstein demon doctrine. Parts of this one and parts of this one and parts of this one kind of become perfectly mixed because that's the best way to attack this church. And that Frankenstein demon doctrine that combines various categories comes at the church. And as you read through First Timothy, you might have noticed, I was oh, some of those categories are you know, both in chapter 1 or both in chapter 6, because even in 1 Timothy, they kind of blur together a little bit. You get a bit of the Frankenstein demon doctrine in 1 Timothy as well. Some of the categories blur together a little bit. The point in breaking them out like that is to see what the threats are, and as I talk about them and show from Scripture what they are, you can see this is real. And Maple Avenue... We're not immune. It's not like the Spirit expressly says this to everybody except for Maple Avenue Baptist Church in Georgetown 2021. No. 
This is what's going to happen everywhere. The winds are going to blow hard. So what is the solution? Seeing the aim, seeing the threat, what's the solution? We're going to be under attack like this. What do we do about it? Well, 1 Timothy is, is, uh, has, a, has a lot to say on this. In chapter 1, it really digs into a charge to Timothy himself, the main leader in that church, telling him what, he, what he's up against and what he needs to be about. But then in chapters 2 and 3, which form a unit, it, it, it talks about, it addresses how men are to behave in church, how women are to behave in church, and then it talks about overseers and the kind of men they need to be, and then it talks about deacons and the kind of men and women they need to be. And then again we move to chapter 4, where Timothy is again addressed, the leader of the church, giving him charges, telling him what he needs to be about. And we come to chapter 5, and again, we deal with widows, particularly as they relate to how they serve within the church and how the church cares for them, and then elders, how they're to be ordained and how they're to be removed from ministry. Chapter 6 is primarily a charge to Timothy again although it also deals with servants and the rich, kind of the two ends of the social spectrum. So in just that, that quick overview of 1 Timothy, you can kind of see there's a real focus on the leaders of the church, how it's ordered, ordered God's way. And in the charges to Timothy, Paul's very concerned about his character, his life, and what he teaches, what his agenda is. His agenda needs to be about keeping God's word front and center. Devote yourself to the teachings of Scripture, or to the reading of, public reading of Scripture, to teaching and exhortation in light of that. Right? That's, that's his agenda, to be a word man, and there's a certain character he must have. And that's why when you read the qualifications for overseers, it's saying, we need to have these overseers Protecting the church and leading the church. And they need to be men who exhibit these kind of qualifications. And we need deacons. This is another office that I've given, God says, to the church. And these men and women need to meet these qualifications. Widows who have a prominent role in the church. Here's, here's the kind of people we need serving in that capacity. And here's how we deal with elders. Removing them and ordaining them. You see, there's an agenda there to have, to be given to a certain thing, helping the church be saturated with God's word. And there's a character trait. There are character traits that they must have. The solution that God gives, I've kind of brought that all into the category of godly order. So again, in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that, to you, so that if I delay, you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. I am writing these things so that you'll know how to behave in the church, how it's supposed to work, 
how it's supposed to be ordered. Now, as I said, it begins with men and women. It ends with servants and rich. As the leadership gives themselves to saturating the church with the word of God, there is an expectation that that's going to flow out to all the people as we live out the godliness that accords with sound doctrine. So certainly it's not just about leadership. It's about how that impacts all of us as a church. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to see what God is on about. When he says the solution He's saying we need to to have a leadership that functions a certain way, that has certain offices, that meet certain qualifications, that have a certain agenda. That's ultimately the way to keep that big rig on course. So the solution for these ungodly times is godly order, God-given order. He sets the agenda He decides who should be leaders, and we look to him. So that leads to the last category of the sermon. Why does it matter? It's interesting. Like, parenting's a pretty big part of my life right now. Probably for many of you, it's a pretty big topic of thought. There's no book of the Bible devoted to parenting. How do we engage in the political world? That's an important question these days. There's no book of the Bible devoted to how we engage with the political world, though both those topics are dealt with in Scripture. But we have a whole book here devoted to something related to how we function as the local church, how we organize, how we order as the local church. Here's a word for you. Ecclesiology. Not to be confused with eschatology, which is the understanding of the end of time, ecclesiology. It's it's the theological word that says just how we think about church. And most of us don't give a lot of thought to our ecclesiology. It's not a big deal. I mean, I want the church to have good programs for my kids. I want to be able to show up on Sunday morning and be moved by the music and the preaching. And I want it to be Christian. Check, check, check. Good church. Why a whole book like this? Why does this matter? Sure, yeah, it helps the big rig stay on course. I got it, James. But remember that section that runs from chapter 2 to chapter 3? I want to look how it begins and ends. First, how it ends. Again, this passage that we've been camping out on, 3, 14, and 15. Talks about the church as the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And then it says, Great indeed we confess is a mystery of godliness, and it talks about Jesus and what he did in this kind of you know little poem. Sticking with our road trip theme. Have you ever been driving and way off in the distance there is some sign advertising a restaurant that's like sky high? It's usually Cracker Barrel, isn't it? Those buttery buttermilk biscuits, chicken fried chicken, 
here I come. It's on this huge, like, almost upside-down telescope, holding it way up in the sky. Saying that's what the church is. We're like that that upside-down telescope. We're a pillar and buttress. And what is it that's on our sign? It's not Cracker Barrel or the Golden Arches. It's the truth. That is to say, as we see in verse 16, the mystery of godliness, it's, it's the truth about what Jesus has done. The gospel. And look at how this section in chapters 2 and 3 began. Commends a certain kind of prayer. and verse 3 it says, This is good and is, in, is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want you to know how to behave in the church because the church is that, is that big pillar that, that holds up the sign of the truth because my heart, God says, is for all people to be saved. That's all that's at stake when we think about the church. You see, healthy churches, sound churches, tend to produce healthy Christians, sound Christians. We saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, that the incubator for our Christian life is the local church as we gather and do what God's called us to do. In that healthy environment, in that healthy environment, we grow and we become these little signposts telling the world what what the gospel's like. Maybe you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ. We want, and, and we do this imperfectly, but we want our church to be, we want you to be able to see the reality of what Jesus has done, that we are broken sinners who when we are on our throne ourselves make a mess of things. So we're not self-righteous and proud and thinking we've got it together. No, we realize our weakness and we run to Jesus because of what he did on the cross that allowed our sins to be forgiven, us to be given new hearts and then reconciled to our heavenly father so that we can tap into the life he affords as he gives us his spirit and we start to grow in new ways as born-again people. We hope you see that even imperfectly in our midst because that's what the gospel is and that's what's supposed to be happening as we give ourselves to this. Why does all this matter? Because God cares for the sinner. God loves you. You who feel like, why, do I, why am I even in church? I don't belong here. He loves you. And so he has a book saying, here's how we're going to produce healthy Christians that can be this pillar and buttress of truth, holding out the mystery of godliness. And if we're going to keep that big rig on course with all these different winds that are blowing, here's what needs to happen. Ecclesiology matters. So Maple Avenue Baptist Church. It has happened before in our past. 
It will happen in the future. And if we believe the scriptures, it's even happening now. The Spirit expressly says it. The threat of demon doctrine. Trying to blow this big rig off course. It's real. And the stakes are high. We don't need to come up with our own ideas for how to solve that. We need to look to God's word. Say, what have you said, God? We'll follow it because we trust you. And that's what this series really is about. We're going to move through 1 Timothy and see how does God want us to behave as a church? How has he ordered us? So that we can stay on course and have godly order in an ungodly day. So I ask you, even as I challenge myself, as we go through this series, open your heart. Say, God, we want to hear from you. We want you directing our steps as a church. We want our order to be what you want. Not any man-made idea. Let's let that guide and direct us. Will you pray with me? Father, our hearts want other people to know the good news of Jesus. We've met the mediator between God and man, Jesus. We've experienced that, and we want others to know that. So may our church, God, you know, as a leader, I am flawed and imperfect, and we are a flawed and imperfect church. But we want our church more and more to to be sound so that we can be producing the kind of billboards for the power of Christ that you intend us to be. So take this series today, or this over the next few months, and shape us as a church that we might stay on course when the winds blow. In Jesus' name, amen.